Well, I was going to say, as we get into the text, that you're probably familiar with this passage. It's been read or cited at certain points, and you've interacted with it at some crossroads, I'm sure. Um, I felt like I was given such a, uh, I, I finally struck a chord that we're always seeking after, and it's uh, to finally be relevant for one Sunday morning. I, I'm, I'm culturally savvy and relevant this morning um, of what we're always after, right? I mean, we're talking about taxes at the same time, see, between the Trump plan, the Tax New Job Act, get it, right? We're, there, that's a big news deal. We're talking about taxes in church. That's just awesome, like... Totally relevant. Totally what you guys wanted to hear. Um, either which way, that was a joke. But the point of our time this morning is actually not going to be about tax reform. Um, the, the thrust of the passage is pretense of being religious. So I want you to think about that. And I, I'm, I'm already way off where I was going at the very beginning. Um, my joke skewed my perspective on it. But... Um, the, the thrust of the passage that you need to consider as you look at it um, is the way they approach and speak to Jesus. Now, I'm going to give away all the rest of the sermon if I keep going too far down here, but I do want to offer you up front, I guess, now that we're here, to think about how carefully you're listening to the sermon. Or, as we'll get to it, like, how have you gone through the cadence of the service so far? Like, individually, you spiritually, between you and the Lord. Because that's the thrust of this passage. It's not tax reform. It's about a pretense of being religious. And, and I hope to develop that so that you can see that um, as we go forward. As we mentioned last week, we were in the tenants in the vineyard parable. And I was trying to paint the picture of the, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. That is, the religious center of Israel, the religious center of Jerusalem, is seething mad at the parable that was told because they perceived in him telling it, that is, Jesus telling this parable about a vineyard, about stewards, about servants, about tenants, and about the lack of fruit, about wild grapes, about good grapes, they're hearing it, and it's like a trigger, a trigger of anger. Because they know, they perceive, we know what he's saying. And he's embarrassing us. So look at this passage right off the bat as it picks up, as our Lord finishes in verse 18. Let me just explain it to you like this. Everyone who falls on the stone, this particular stone, that is himself, the cornerstone, this dividing line, this plumb line, whoever falls on it will be broken in pieces. And again, it's not some people. It's everyone. This universal appeal of the gospel. It doesn't come with caveat or nuance, given your life context and situation. It's everyone. Then it continues, and it says, and when it falls on anyone, so somebody lands on it or it lands on them, there's not a receptive relationship going on here, but it is a collision of the stone and anyone. The outcome is devastating. Now, he finishes that whole context making that 
broad appeal to everybody who's involved, the crowds and the religious um, kind of uh, gatekeepers. Verse 19 then begins this way. As I mentioned to you towards the end of last week, the scribes, that is, the scholars among them, those who were well-trained, well-schooled, knew the scriptures, they're the guys with this sense of an Ivy League education, divinity school. They've got it going down. Then the chief priests, these of right birth, right, right blood type. They're in the right crowd. They're the chief priests. So, again, two groups of people, gatekeepers in religious life of Israel. What did their response, what is their response to the parable that's being told? They sought to lay hands on him at that very moment. Again, why? They perceived that he told this parable against them. They knew their part. They knew when the indictment was read that they're guilty as charged. But it didn't matter if they're guilty or not. They would rather proceed in their guilt if it meant power, control, and influence. Guilty as charged, fine, I'll sign the document. Either which way, let me proceed. And I can't do that as long as you're here influencing the crowds against me. So in that very moment, it wasn't a repentance. It wasn't a, man, he's got us. Maybe we ought to second guess ourselves. It was, we need to get rid of him. Or this whole infrastructure is going to collapse down. Now, the language there, as you look in the passage, of of what they wanted to do, it's kind of got a a, a broad range of meaning, right? I mean, they wanted to lay hands on him in that very hour. In the one sense, it is, as you would expect, from an angry group of men. They wanted to lay hands on him in that very moment. It's kind of straightforward, right? They they wanted to wring his neck. That is, they want to bring him down. That's fine. Let's kill him. let's, Let's have him killed. Whatever it is, let's whisk him off the stage in front of the folks so that we can keep our power. So let's get rid of him. So it it carries that dark sense of, yeah, what you would expect because you're a Christian reader, right? And you know what's coming on Friday. So you're like, they want to lay hands on him. I get it. They want to get rid of him. But there's also another aspect that has a broader range of meaning on the sense of what they wanted to do to him. If they couldn't simply get rid of him, then they still wanted to bring him up on some sort of formal charges. So the point of wanting to lay hands on him is either which way, they want to shut him down. If it's by entrapment, let's trick him into saying something that's inappropriate, aha, we got him. Or if it's, we want to lay hands on him, if nobody's looking, let's kill him. Either which way, the stage is set for a collision course. It's going to be resolved. They're not just going to walk away from this situation. There's too much at stake. The question, the obvious question then at that point as a reader is they perceive that he's talking about them. He now has embarrassed and shamed them in front of these people, and they want to get rid of him. The question is, then why don't you? Why don't you just lay hands on him? Why don't you just take him down right there? Why don't you, by mob violence, tackle him? Like, what's the calculus here? Why wait? Why not act? Why not kill him? Why not bring him out of charge? Why why, Why are you not, if you're so vehemently wanting to destroy him, why are you not? Look in the passage just briefly as we kind of open up our text this morning. The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived rightly that he had told this parable against them. Well, then do what you're going to do. No, we can't. Why not? Because they feared the people. 
So now they have this kind of calculus in the crowd. Do, do we act on him and get rid of him or have the, like if we do this number, has the winds, have the winds shifted against us? Is the wind to our backs here? We're, we're taking the, 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 the temperature of the crowd. Is the crowd with us or are they tilting the scales toward him? Because the crowd is simply mob, by mob violence going to control us and our response to Jesus. How can we get rid of Jesus? Well, what's our easiest pathway there? Well, what do you think? So you can kind of see them gather together, right, and be like, hey, let's come up with a plan here. All right, look, I'll make a left, and I'll go up, and then you go here, and you go this way. You know, doing one of these things, like, how are we going to get rid of him? And as they're thinking of a plan, it's, I don't think we have the numbers. I think we're going to be overwhelmed. Now, the reason why they could sense that they don't have the numbers in the crowd is because they perceived that the crowd also understood that the parable was told about them. So you see, simultaneously, multiple things are happening. Jesus is now preaching, and everybody, as it's reported earlier in Luke 19, everybody is hanging on his every word. By the time we get to, I think it's the end of chapter 21, every morning he's up early and he's teaching in the temple. So again, this is happening for, Wednesday, this is happening for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Three days of consistent and constant teaching in the temple complex. So the people are hearing this gospel and this word. It's falling on them, and they are hanging, Luke says, on his every word. So this is happening. The people, simultaneously, as he teaches then, the people are hearing in faith, and it's like a great thawing effect. It's warming. It's strengthening. So far, the momentum is shifting, and the crowd is swelling in Jesus' favor. At that same time, as the crowd kind of swells, these guys over here who had the stranglehold on the crowd before are growing as well, only in less and less patience and more and more violence. So you have these two things occurring at the same time. As you can imagine, again, you're a Christian reader, and you're here on Lord's Day, celebrating the fruits of such a story and the narrative already. So you know that this kind of, this swelling together comes to collide in a very violent way. Jesus has the influence for now. He has the sway of the crowd and the momentum now. So we cannot simply take him out, or we'll all be taken out. So what should we do? They're not going to walk away from it they need to come up with some way. So they kind of hatch almost like a third option. A third option, and you'll see it in the passage, is we could entrap him. What about the crowds? They don't care. The crowds are with him. No, 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 no. Kind of forget about the crowd for a moment. We have another option. What's the additional option? Because right now in a triangulated relationship, We're not winning. But if we broaden the relationship to involve the Romans, the Romans can deal with the crowd. And they can deal with Jesus. So we need to get him at odds with Rome. It's a surefire way of getting him killed. 
that's the scheme. And you have to admit, at some point, it's very calculated and it's rather clever. Because I can't out-debate him. You saw how that went down with whose authority is this that you use. Well, that didn't end well for them. So they're not going to take him on debate number two. They have to get him to side against Rome. Look at the text as we move forward and look at their clever scheme. Begin, again, beginning in verse 19, they hatch a new plan. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at the very hour. For they perceived what he had done, that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, that the wind is simply not to their backs. Verse 20, so they watched him, and they sent spies. So, so, so here's the, the, the new plan. This is what I introduced a moment ago about the pretense of being religious. Notice they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. What was the point of sending the spies to pretend to be sincere? Well, so that they might catch him in something that he said. What are you going to do once you gather him and you catch him publicly making a left-footed move verbally? Well, we're going to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. This is the move. To trip him up, to set him up, it's called entrapment. Create a scenario that he doesn't know he's walking into, pin him down, expose him, even if it's by a verbal mistake, and have him hung. Report back to the Romans right away. Again, the charge that they could bring up to the Romans in this scenario of, look, well, just look at the text with me just briefly. Again, verse 21. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak rightly and we show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Right, so you're, you're connecting at the end of verse 20 the, the point of let's, let's hammer him on the governor. Let's bring in Caesar's authority and ask him, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? What would be the charge they could bring against Jesus at that very moment then if he said, well, you know, they're infidels. We, 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 should, not, we should not pay tax to them. Insurrection. At this point in time, thousands of people are following him. So what he would face the charge of is an insurrection against Rome. If he was brought up on charge of insurrection, Rome is going to sweep in. And you have some picture of Roman chokehold when we talked about AD 70. Forty years from this date, roughly you know, 38 years or so from this standpoint in the text, you have 70 AD, roughly right at 70 AD. The Romans sweep in, and we've covered this before, and we're going to cover it in another week or two, I think, in the, in the middle section of verse tw chapter 21. Rome sweeps in and destroys the place, burns it to the ground. That display of power is what would happen here in this text as well. If you just decide, hey, Rome, we're not going to pay tax to you. And in fact, me, as a person of influence over thousands, I'm telling them not to give tribute to you either. Yes insurrection. Rome will sweep in here and lop his head off in a moment. And anybody who rises up as a mob of violence, they'll suffer the same fate. They have a clear pathway to victory here. Think about the final piece. The 
the folks, that is the crowds, where will their anger be tilted toward after Rome sweeps in and swipes out the Lord? Swipes out Jesus of Nazareth, devours any radical followers that are immediate, maybe the disciples and a few pocket groups. Where will the anger and the vehemence of the crowd, where will it find its truest object? The Romans. What will that leave the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes to do? Just to humbly come in and help people pick up the pieces. It's a perfect scheme. We'll swoop back in. We'll help people gather themselves. We'll comfort the brokenhearted. We'll bind up the wounded. We'll be back in power. We have to invite the Romans in. Now, look at how the plan then goes into action. Again, back up into text. I don't want to keep getting ahead of myself, but if you look back up into the text and see how the, the, the plan goes into effect, I'm going to read verse 21 uh, and 22. Well, I, I'll just go back to 20. So, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and you show no partiality, but truly you teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Uh, now, again, if, if you compare this question to the who gives you authority, question. Just, just in the episode before it with the tenants, you'll notice that they've sharpened their, their inquisition. They, they, they've sharpened the focus of the question. They're not going to leave it open like, hey, why don't you tell us who did this? Or how have you come to these views? Or maybe you could expand a little bit for us. No way. When that happened, they got burned and embarrassed. By whose authority do you do these things? Well, you, you tell me who had John Baptist's authority? You tell me that. Uh, well, we're, uh, oh, oh, he caught us. Well, I don't know what we should say. Well, what should we say? Should we say yes or should we say no? Let's not say anything. We're not going to say anything. Okay, well, then let me tell you in front of everybody a parable that will shame and embarrass you. Oh, okay. We need to kill this person. Okay, well, plan B. Let's get Rome involved and trip him up. Okay, fine. What are we going to do? Send the smartest guys we've got. Okay, right, you guys, over there in the corner. You're going in. Pretend to be sincere. Ask him a very good question. And you can imagine they carved it out, right? Well, what, how are we going to get Rome involved? Insurrection. What's going to cause an insurrection? Not paying the taxes that are due. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's ask a question about taxes. Yes. And ask it in such a way, be careful. Ask it in such a way as the only way a man can answer is, Yes or no? Why? I said, trust me, you will embarrass you. Ask simply. Don't give us any nuance. Jesus, don't create any sneaky distinctions. Just give us no allegories. I don't want to hear any more about vineyards. Ask and answer. Do we give it to Caesar or not? Yay or nay? Now, 
this is where the important piece of the narrative emerges for self-examination in this text. And this kind of gets back to where we introed, asking about this morning's cadence in the worship hour and how you came in and how you're receiving it now. That's actually more to the point of the passage. Notice what I mean if we look carefully at how they speak to him. This is a crushing blow of self-examination to each and every one of us as we approach the remainder of our time in the text. Look at how they come in. Verse 20, they're spies. Luke tells us who they are. They don't believe. But notice what he then fills in, but they pretend to be believers. They pretend to be sincere. Look at the language of how they then speak to him in their pretense. Again, think about it in this category, if you can with me. Think about it in the category of pretense. Yours. They came in pretending to be sincere. That's the thrust of the passage. And I, I want to show you how. Notice, again, they allowed him in accolades and praise empty, insincere offerings. Look at what they say in verse 21. So they asked him, hey, what's right for us to do? You just tell us right now. No, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. They're flattering. It would be proper and true if it weren't coming from an empty heart. But they're pretending. But notice the pretense. Look at the language. Verse 21. So they said to him, teacher, we know that you speak, the, you speak and teach rightly. How many of us have that same faux sincerity going. Look at this passage. We know that you speak and teach rightly, and, and you show no partiality. We're, we're all under the weight of your speech. We're all needing to consider. We're all before you. You, you truly teach the way of God by pretense. Again, this is a real danger for us this morning to consider. The danger for us in considering this text I want to put forward is that how often we think so little of God that we think we can fake our devotion to not just the people in the room right now, but we think so little of him, we can fool God as well. They come in thinking this is doable. All we got to do is fake it because all he is is a man. 
We can gather for Lord's Day. We can go through the cadence of the service. And we can say, teacher, we know that you teach rightly. We know that your word is from God. We know that you are our Lord. We know that you are our Savior. Praise the Lord. We can recite the psalm together. We can say it all. And we think in those moments so little of who he is that we can fake not only the people around us out, that we're like totally into this on Lord's Day. We think that we can leave here as well with a pretense of fooling him. Again, is there a disconnect in your own mind? Just put the weight of your own conscience forward for just a moment. Is there an honestly, is there a disconnect between your outward persona and your own inner person? Hebrews 4 is a great text to be reminded of what's about to happen to these individuals who are very clever in their own mind. We're very clever. We're going to fake him out. He won't really know. And we'll win over the crowds, maybe. Again, is that us? We could say all those same things. Hebrews 4 reminds us, as I said, of a great place our minds and our hearts need to go about pretense of religion. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. You're familiar with them. Let me read them for you. For the word of God is living and active. Let me just, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. Oh, this is going to work. No, it's not. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can pierce to the division of the soul and of the spirit. It pierces of the joints and of the marrow. And it discerns. They sent spies out pretending. Oh, teacher. But the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions. This is so direct, right? Of the heart. The inner motivation. What are we doing here? What am I doing here this morning, right now, speaking to you? What are you doing here this morning, coming to receive? Because the, the, listen to this passage keeps going into verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed. They sent in spies. We can trip them up. We'll just say something. We'll pretend to be sincere. Faux sincerity doesn't work. I'm not saying everybody's constantly going to be on fire and constantly just going to be riding the high wave of whatever thought of carefree bliss Christianity is there. That's not the other option. But a deep heart's belief of sincerity that he is your Lord. 
that he is the only way of salvation and that he has called you to follow him. Sincerely, that will cost you. You will have to make new choices based on that. You're going to have to break sinful patterns in your life that are going to hurt you because of that. You have to continue to fight the swell of unbelief that is coming at each of us every day through conviction of conscience, sometimes the conscience uninformed, convincing us when we don't need to be convinced. That too is hard. To turn to the word of God in daily discipline, to come to Lord's day with sincerity and truth, not in high-flying victory that all is well at every angle, but sincerity and truth, that indeed my faith does rest on Christ and Christ alone. Otherwise, coming here and doing this and thinking we're somehow gaining, we're not, we're losing. We might as well go to brunch. There is no faux sincerity that equals deliverance. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. The eyes of who? The one to whom we must give an account, not your neighbor. They can't save you, and they can't condemn you. I'll just kind of conclude this thought of religious insincerity the pretense this morning is it what if this does resonate? That perhaps you did come in this morning and you went through the liturgy or the cadence and you said the psalm and you confessed with Heidelberg the truth of our own depravity and our own sinfulness. And then we were moved to sing and to pray, to rejoice, but our heart was still ice cold. knowing now that we cannot fake one another or that we can succeed in faking out one another, but we know that that doesn't matter because we only have an accountability to one. And we found out we cannot fake him out. What must we do? Listen to this passage of 1 John 1, 8, just for a moment. Again, you're familiar with these two texts, but just hear it afresh in light of these guys who think, I know what we can do. We can fake sincerity. And get away with it. 1 John 1.8. It begins in 1.8 and then it hits you with 1.9, of which you're probably even more familiar. 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Right? These guys are saying, no, 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 no. You don't deceive yourself. You just deceive him. Just pretend to be sincere. Go over there. Say it. Remember, it's about taxes. Just fake to be sincere. He'll know. No, he won't. No, 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 no. Just say the right things. Go through the right cadence. Say something like, I don't know, like, great teacher. We know that you're from God. Say stuff like that. And if you go through it, the crowds will be convinced of it. Your neighbor will be thinking, man, that's a good guy. That's a great gal. And he won't know the difference. Well, you'll deceive him. But 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive not him but ourselves. So who's really being deceived? 
by pretending to be something we're not. We are. And John concludes at the end of verse 8, and the truth, it just isn't within us. Falsehood lies within our heart. But there is a remedy, verse 9. But on the contrary side of things, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. The issue of pretense, pretending to be something you're not, you're not going to deceive God. Like whatever you got going this morning, you're not deceiving the only person to whom you give an account. You're just deceiving yourself. Notice how then Jesus exposes their pretense, and this will kind of be our concluding few comments. Look at verse 23. Again, don't be surprised. The question, again, verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Yes or no? No allegories. And to each of us, verse 23, he perceived their craftiness. Again, just to find a word on that. This is not like a one-off. He perceived in that moment that they were crafty. Any sense of religious pretense. This morning, he perceives our craftiness. It then goes, so he then exposes it for the sake of the crowd, not his own. He didn't need to figure out, I wonder if they're trying to trap me. I'm just going to strip these guys down in front of everybody. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Show me a Roman coin. Show show me one. Bring it in. Let's make an object lesson of it. Uh, Not an allegory this time. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said very predictably, Caesar's. Then what's the confusion, right? Have you ever stumbled to this passage at the end? It says, they marveled at what he said. And you're like, it seems pretty straightforward. I don't really know why they marveled. Have you ever, it seems, if you're just a straight reading of the passage, give me a coin whose image is on it. Caesar's. All right, well, then it seems like it belongs to him. And they're like, oh. <laughs> right? And it's like, Either which way, they marveled. And you just keep, and you're, you're like, what do I read for Tuesday? You know, you're on to the next passage for your stay on schedule, right? And, um, but but it, it, it does a, a kind of a, a thunder strike. You just, you just got to pause on it for a moment. And you say, oh, when he says that, we pause for way too long or in a moment. No, just a moment. Just a moment. Think clearly about what he just said. I'll read it again. Show me a denarius. In comes the coin. Now, as a Christian reader, key in on the very next phrase. Whose likeness does it have? Where have you heard that language? 
You know what he's getting at too. Keep going, verse 25. Well, they said Caesar's. He said to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Do you see what he did? By inscription and stamp of likeness, Caesar owns that coin. And you're like, I know, we're getting it. See it, totally. But notice then the next question remains. Who owns the man who owns the money? Again, it's not about taxes. Notice what I'm saying where he says, it doesn't stop there. Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. It's about taxes. All we want to know is should we give taxes to Caesar? Whose coin is it? What's the image on it? Yes, excellent point. A ruler puts his stamp on all that is his own. So if by image bearing, that is right ownership of the ruler, whose image do you bear? Or I guess I could say, show me a human being whose likeness and inscription does it bear? Oh, could we just talk about taxes? No, no. By principle, a ruler stamps with his likeness and his image all that belongs to him. The coin bears Caesar's inscription, his image, his likeness. I guess we ought give to him what rightly by stamp belongs to him. Oh, and also the things that are God's render to him. As the kids say, burn. Because each man there knew the answer to the inscription. Who owns the man who owns the money? God does. Right? So how many people are accountable to him? Everyone. Why? Because they all bear his likeness. This is the final comment of the passage. Notice he said to them, then render to Caesar things are his by right approval. Stamp. It has his image. Oh yeah, and don't forget, and to God, the things that are God's Ah, oh, verse 26, and they were not able, surprise, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said. But knowing Genesis 1, they marveled at his answer and they became silent. I conclude with this thought, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind, all of us in here, in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his image. 
in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Remember, the question is never, do you guys, all of us, do you want a relationship with God? By virtue of being born into time and space, bearing his likeness, the question is, what kind of relationship do you want with God? And the plumb line of a good and peaceful and restful relationship with him is through Christ alone. But it isn't like if, if you don't choose Christ, if you don't rest in him by faith, you'll just go on to have no relationship to God. Whose inscription do you bear? Then render to him the things that are his. You already have a relationship with him by likeness. The gospel question is, do you have a good one? And not one of pretense. Father, we thank you for this revealing word to each of our own.